0: So if you've been with us the last couple weeks, I've been uh, telling you that we are going to start this long trek through the book of Judges this morning. And um, it's seven weeks long, and so that provides some problems, um, which I'll explain in a second um, for the the size of the book that it is. But before I do that, just a a couple things uh, to to do. I I have um, a background to get to and some prerequisites that we need to talk about. Before I even do that, though, we recognize there's going to be some questions on the table as we go through this. This is a pretty difficult book to read a little bit. Um, and, and so because of that, we want to help in a little bit, uh, a ways that we can, we understand that you have redemption community leaders that you can ask, but we're also going to try somebody in the church has offered to kind of help facilitate this blog, um, that we, we have, and you can, I don't have a, a thing on there, but if you go to all Um, All of Life blog, that's just one word. You'll be able to see kind of our trek, Redemption Peoria specifically, our trek through Judges. And you can ask questions and um, there'll be some comments and and stuff that that we put up for the sermon and all that. So if you have any questions, there's a way to do that. Um, This is seven weeks long. You will not just be hearing from me in the seven weeks. You'll hear from Jim and John, two of the elders as well. Um, And and it's going to be an adventure, all right? It's going to be pretty crazy. Um, Now here's what I want to say before we even get to the background of this book, okay? Okay. this book, as I have said, week after week, has some pretty rough stories in it, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, the last week that we spend together in the book of Judges is a story of a man who gives his wife away to a mob so that that mob can rape her, kill her, cut her body into pieces, and then they send it out. Um, it is very, very graphic. Um, and it's honest. Things that talking vegetables never told you when we went through these stories. Um, and so, so, so I, we're going to be brutally honest as we go through this. But because of that, that requires a couple things that, um, to be honest with you, culturally um, we are removed from, geographically removed from, and chronologically we're removed from. I mean this is four thousand years removed, four thousand miles removed from us. And so I just want to put a couple things on the table. And um, and that is this. Um if you're not aware what has happened in our culture, specifically the, the way that you think The way that you go to school, I mean even my my kids who who go to a classical learning type school, I can see some of the things that they're learning and the way that they're learning and the way that they're being taught um, has has seeped. in. I can see where it's coming from. And there's a couple things that I want really to make you aware of that maybe you're not really aware of. And that is this, In, in, in the thinking that you'll hear on TV shows or um, on the radio or certain news channels, is this idea that we as a culture have progressed, we have, we have moved forward past certain barbaric ideologies we have gone, we've grown so much intellectually as a culture that there are certain things that we used to do and used to look back on women's rights or uh, uh, the way that we view slavery or, or, or different things. And we go, well, that was barbaric. And now we've, we've moved on from that. The greatest of these, probably the greatest example is religion itself, right? Where, where some people in our culture will look and go, well, religion is kind of an old crutch. You don't need it now. And, and, and now we, we've, we've thought our way through that. And this is enlightenment thought. If you're not familiar with post-modernity and all that, that's where all this stuff comes from. And, and I, I think the reason reason it's important that we start there is because we're so far removed from judges that we're going to read stories um, that take place in these 21 chapters of this book, and we're going to immediately push back and go, that's ridiculous. And the reason that that's problematic is because even some things that take place in this book are still happening in certain cultures and are not considered bad to them. Okay? Now, I don't mean just all the bad things. I mean, there are certain things that are, that are um, even, you know, problematic. How do we deal with this? One, a great example is a few years back, I was sitting at a table with a guy who was from the Middle East, and he was a Christian in a persecuted area in, in, the, in the world, and we were sitting there and we were talking about women in the church, right? And he was like, it's amazing to me how in America you continue to to say the Bible is so conservative. That women, you know, oh, you guys point and say the, the women are allowed in the church and they shouldn't be talking or whatever. And so, and it's, but what's crazy is from where I'm from, the Bible is so liberal that like we don't even allow women in the church. Like, so now hear me, women, I am. Glad you are here, okay? This is, my point is not the whole women, you know, egalitarianism and any of that. My point is this uh, from, from their perspective, we would look at their culture and go, well, you're just ignorant, barbaric, and wrong, right? Like, we've progressed so far in this, and we just take our enlightenment attitudes and go, just wrong, right? And we're gonna hear stories that we go, There's a tension. We're going to uh, get ethnic cleansing, rape, murder, prostitution. How do we process this? Even this morning, I have to argue and put in front of you why the people of God failed at ethnic cleansing, and that was a bad thing. Okay, now now how do we wrestle with that? What do we do with that? And what I don't want us to do is come to this table and go, hey, here's the deal. Um, I I have these beliefs and ideas and that's just wrong. I want us to put our guard down, if you could, and say, okay, how do we process this? What does this look like? What, what, What do we do with this? And I think it will help to understand that it's culturally removed. It's a different time the way that things are going is, 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 um, is just completely foreign to the way that we understand things to be, okay? So with that being said, that's, that's kind of moving forward into the book of Judges. I will say um, it's not anything that you couldn't bring your kids into, uh, but it, it, we are gonna brutally tell in, in all honesty everything that takes place in the book of Judges, and it is not always uh, pretty, like I just said, the story that I just shared, okay? So let me give you a little bit of background. Um, you've already opened, if, if you have, uh, to Judges chapter one, um, let me, uh, let me start before we get to Judges chapter 1 and set this up. I'm going to give the background before we even get into Judges. I'm actually going to start in Joshua chapter 24. Here's, here's the deal. If you're new to Christianity, maybe you don't know this. Let me just give you a little story, a story that I've told quite often since we've started. And it starts with God creating all things. Remember that? Maybe you've heard about that somewhere. God creates all things. But then the next chapter in Genesis 3, so 1 and 2, God's creating. All things are good, very good. In Genesis 3, all things fall apart. Well, what happens when things fall apart, God identifies a people, specifically one person. You may have heard his name before. His name is Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through about 21, you hear this interaction between God and Abraham. And basically God is telling Abraham, hey, I'm going to start a people through you. And he does. That people, his family grows. He chooses this people, he is using this people, and they grow, and they grow, and they grow. And then you may have heard another tale when they grow so much that they find themselves in Egypt, and they've grown outgrown their welcome, outstayed their welcome, and Egypt doesn't like them, and so they subjugate them into slavery. And as they put them into slavery, they begin to cry out. This millions of people begin to cry out to God, we don't want to be here, we don't want to be here. So they use another man, a name you might have heard before, Moses. And Moses comes on the sea, and he says, okay, let's go. Let's roll. And so there's the Red Sea. They, they, they part the Red Sea. Well, well, when they get on the other side of the ocean, or this sea, when they get on the other side of this body of water, and they left Egypt out of slavery, they go, now what? Like, we've left our house. We've left the people that we knew. We left our stuff. We have no food. We have no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Okay? Um, it's dumb and dumber. Um so, so, now what do they do? How do they process this? What, what, what do they do? Okay. Well, well, God, from the beginning, has told them that they are going to make their way into this land. Now, here's the trick. While they are being rescued from slavery, before that, God had set, the, set them up to, uh, to be 12 different groups. Okay. He said, you've got all these millions of people. I want to set you up to 12 different groups. We'll call them tw- tribes. They're called the 12 tribes of Israel. Setting them up. And these 12 tribes make their way and go, now what? Well, God reminds them of a promise. Hey. Now that you're out of slavery, you don't know what to do, I'm going to send you to this land that I promised you. From now on, we'll call it the promised land, okay? So I'm going to send you to this promised land, and when you get there, it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome, okay? So they're super excited about this. Moses doubts, the guy who saved them out of Egypt. So Moses doesn't get to go, so they're on the cusp of going at the end of, so if you know your Bible, Genesis Exodus, that's when those stories happen. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the three books that tell the people of God how to act. And those first five books, um, if you wanted to be a Pharisee, if you were here when we went through Mark, those first five books um, you had to memorize, okay? So that's terrible. Um, You you had to memorize those first five books. Well, right after that begins this story. Okay, so there, God's rescued them. He's given them this this law. Moses couldn't make it. Who's going to have us take this promised land? And it's this guy named Joshua. Joshua. And if you read the book of Joshua, it is brutal, okay? It's basically Joshua just doing work on everyone, okay? He's like, and then they died by the sword. And 80,000 people died by the sword. It's just a book of war. Like gladiator holds nothing to it. It's just over and over death, blood, Death, right? And so he he makes their way in. The, these twelve tribes make their way into the land of Canaan, right? And it's awesome. It's great. They're finally in the promising. They have a place to call home. It's great. And this is where modern-day Israel is. They've made their way in. This is awesome. Okay? Now here's the thing: they're in this land, but there's still some Canaanites, that the land that they're in, there's still some Canaanites that are kind of dwelling there. There's still some people in the land, and God said, Listen, you need to get them out of the land. This is a land that I have given you. Okay? Let me stop very quickly. If you immediately struggle with that, that ethnic ethnic cleansing piece of that, like why would God be telling them? There's a, there's really is a great book uh, by a guy named Chris Wright called "The God I Don't Understand," and there's two chapters in that book specifically devoted to what about the Canaanites? Like, how do we process what? Why is God telling them to do that? Um, and I've, unfortunately, from the apologetic portion, I can't go all into that. Uh, but just understand the story, and, and we'll continue on. So, so God is telling them move. There's these twelve tribes, and then we get to Joshua chapter twenty four. At the very end, Joshua has brought them into the land. They got these 12 tribes in. Everything's great. This is what Joshua says. Um, You can open there. It's just the one chapter before Judges. It's literally the book before Judges. Joshua chapter 24 says this in verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads and the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel— Long ago, dot, dot, dot. And he gathers, he, at that point, after gathering all the judges and all the people and all the rulers together, he begins to tell them the story I just told you. Remember how God rescued us from the Red Sea. Remember how God saved us from the Egyptians. Remember uh, Jericho. Remember these stories where God did awesome things, and he tells them that story. So let's pick it up in verse 14. After he tells them that story, he says this then. Now, therefore, after you know this story, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the Jordan or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua says, you know the story. You've heard the story before. He rescued you. He saved you. Now serve him. But here's the deal. Either serve him or serve the Canaanite gods, the Amorites. Serve him or serve... You pick. I know who I'm going to serve. Choose who you're going to serve because this... I'm telling you, me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Coffee mug, t-shirt, done. Pass it out, okay? <laughs> so so he, he says, he says all these things and he pronounces, yes, you need to pick who you're going to serve. And he continues on, verse 16. Then the people answer. They answer back to Joshua. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord, our God, who brought us brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the ways that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed, verse 18, and the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land, therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So here's Joshua go, listen, you need to pick who you're going to serve, but I'm going to serve the Lord. And they go, oh yeah, us too. We know that story. We're not going anywhere. We'll serve the Lord. And then um, Joshua kind of looks at him for a second. We won't read this portion, but he looks at him and goes, I know you guys, and I've seen what you've done before. You're going to mess this up. And they go, no, 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 no. We're going to mess this up. This is is right. What this is totally like, it's dead on with Is If you grew up in church um, and sometimes a teenager, you went to church camp. This is the last night of camp okay this is if you're not if you're not familiar with church camp essentially what takes place is there's these kind of intermediate messages but the last night you got some dude getting up going man I'm never gonna sit again I'm not not only I'm gonna I'm gonna quit school I'm gonna pass out tracks all day I'm never even gonna look at a tv again women I hate them okay there's this There's this crazy declaration like, yes, and it's big. And it's all right. When we go down the hill after camp, it's going to be awesome. And that's where, that's where Joshua ends. Like you've made it to the land. It's a big deal. We're here. We've arrived. We're going to get this right. Big. And then it sets up judges. What's to look like the last verse. um, Well, close to the last verse ends with this uh, in verse 29. And these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died being 110 years old. So. With that kind of being the the temperature of Judges, um, before we read Judges 1, let me um, give us some handlebars and and how we can work this. I I think there's um, some helpful ways. First, let me give you a little bit of an outline, okay? So um, this might be better for some of you who are linear that kind of process things a little bit differently than I do. I'm not a big fan of outlines at all. I'm just like, let's just talk about it. Um, But this will be helpful for us. Um, So uh, it's 21 chapters long, which is a little problematic in that Um, If you think of the book of Mark, it was 16 chapters and it took us 40 weeks to get through 16 chapters. We are going to take seven weeks to get through 21 chapters, right? So um, it's more chapters in like less than 20% of the time that it took us to get through the gospel of Mark. So because of that... We're not going to be able to read every single verse, though I would love to. Um, I will do my best to summarize. John and Jim will do their best to summarize when we need to do that. But we're going to go through this whole portion. And here's how the book of Judges is kind of laid out, um, if, you, if you like this stuff. So um, we, this morning, are going to go through just the introduction. We're not really going to get into any of the judges themselves, which I'll explain. We're going to go through the first two chapters and then the beginning of the third chapter. Um, and we'll kind of break that down. And then we're going to get into these all these judges. So names you've probably heard before. Gideon, Deborah, uh Samson. We're going to go through all these people and some maybe that you haven't. Um, and as we go through those, then we will finally conclude, um, our last week on the conclusion. Okay. That will be our conclusion. So, um, this is kind of a a way maybe to to think through it and and hopefully it's helpful, um, for whatever it's worth. But, but here's what I want to say as we go into uh, judges one and two. Okay. Um, Judges 1 and 2 are not chronological in nature. So when you see that, don't see Judges 1 and then Judges 2. Think of it more like I come up here and tell a story... And then Stephen comes up here and tells the story and tells the same story from my perspective and his perspective. So we're going to read the intro after camp. We've come down the hill. We're going to get it right. What does that look like right away for the Israelites? Okay. Now here's something that, that we will find, um, throughout the book of judges that I I need you to understand are kind of three reoccurring themes. There is a statement in the book of judges that happens many times, almost a dozen times. And it's a statement that says there was no King in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds super familiar. Um, okay. And so here, let me just explain what that means. Cause it's actually the very last thing that's said in the book of Judges. It sums up what takes place in the book of Judges. When he says there's no king in the land, it doesn't mean that there's not a ruler, but after Joshua dies, the people of God do not submit to God as their king. So there's no king in the land. There is no moral exclusivity. There is no absolute truth because everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Which means what takes place is, another undergarden turn is, Israel, the people of God, go into Canaan, and instead of kicking out the Canaanites, they become Canaanized. It's called the Canaanization of Israel. They slowly start to act like the sin that they were trying to to remove. Okay, So these are kind of some undergirding points that you'll see take place, but I just want to kind of put that in front of you. So if you're there, Judges chapter 1. Um, th- this is, uh, uh, like I said, 4,000 years ago, quite a, quite a bit removed, but I, I hope we can get there. Um, I'm going to read one and two and I'm going to read chapter one, parts of chapter one, and I'm going to kind of break it down. A chapter one, B chapter two, a chapter two, B. Okay. Chapter one is, um, an update. Hey, since Joshua died, how are those tribes doing? They're supposed to be kicking out the Canaanites. How are they doing? How are they doing? Well, here's what's going on with these tribes, um, Joshua, or uh, Judges chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Um, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Let me just stop you real quick. The question is, Joshua's dead... Well, who's going to stand up and fight for the Canaanites? Who's going to kick them out now? Well, how's this going to take place? And, and maybe you're wondering immediately, right away, you're wondering, why are they kicking out the Canaanites? Why there, is there this ethnic cleansing going on? Um, I, I remember specifically um, about a year and a half ago, uh, myself and our community, our redemption community, adopted a refugee family who uh, we adopted from a, a camp. I believe it was in Morocco, and um, we adopted this family uh, from this camp, and we, man, we set up their apartment, we got them food, we picked them up from the airport, and as we brought them home, it was a single mom with uh, four kids, and we, we brought them home, she done all this traveling, super drained, um, and as we arrived into the apartment, we picked them up, and we arrived into the apartment, um, this apartment, if you're familiar at all with this world, is usually what the government does, is sets up um, all the refugees kind of in one apartment, so you'll see apartment complexes who have a lot of uh, foreigners and uh, refugees and all that, and that's, that was this thing. And so as we get there, the seven-year-old boy, who's about my son's age, um, sees another kid. And the kid comes up to talk to him. He was from the apartment. And immediately he starts talking to him in a language I didn't understand. And, and he comes up and he says, oh, he's from where I'm from. We're from the same place. We're the same religion. And what he did was he immediately cor- correlated nationalism um, with religion and race. Like in his mind, that was all the same. And this is probably a dichotomy that we fully don't understand. Like in our mind, we're thinking, "Why is he kicking out the canines? What is this?" But but the reality is, there's this religion and faith thing that um, is way different at this time than we're used to. I have a friend who's who's a black dude, and he uh, when he in high school he was dating this, this girl who was white, and the, the girl's um hus- uh, the girl's dad was a pastor, and clearly told him, "Listen." Uh, Let me show you. And he walks him through some of these passages in the Bible. See, the people of Israel should have nothing to do with the Canaanites. And he used this whole argument why black people and and white people shouldn't be married and dating. And it was a terrible misuse of scripture. That's not what's going on in the Old Testament. It's religion, um, faith, and race, and nationality. There are more mods pods than we think they are that we're used to. No one, uh, if you find yourself in France, they hear, oh, you're from America. You must be whatever religion. No. Like, at best, they might say Christian, but Christian, like, No, we're not anything. If you look at Morocco, 99% Muslim, you would not say that about uh, uh, America. We are anything but all Christian. So there's this kind of uh, flow that maybe you can wrestle with. So now they're asking the question, sorry, just a little side tangent. Now they're asking the question, what do we do? Who's gonna lead us against the Canaanites? And so we get this update. um, Verse four, I'm gonna kind of flow through these. I think we have these. Verse four says this. Then Judah went up, uh, went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. Um, FYI, we're going to read some names and lands that I have no idea how to pronounce, okay? Um, uh, verse nine, and afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites. Verse 10, and Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Verse 11, from there, they went against the inhabitants of Deber. Verse 17, and Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zeb. Zepeth, and devoted it to the destruction. Verse 18, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, not going to try, and its territory, Ekron and its territory. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel. So here's this kind of beginning of Judges. Here's what's going on. We find out some of the tribes, let's say half of them, are just doing work. All right, good. So yeah, we've established these 12 tribes and, and Judah, you're doing good. And, and here you're doing good and we're doing good. And we get this update of how well they're doing. And this sounds good. They're driving them out and, and things are going well. But then we get to the second half. So I think we highlighted all those. We, we, then we're going to get to the second half of, of some of the things that are not taking place. So this is, again, just an update. Uh, uh, judges 1, what's happened after being at camp? They come down um, so far so good. They're doing well. Verse 27 says this. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Shean, continuing on in its villages, and Tanakh in its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, or the inhabitants of Eblom and its villages, or its inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. So they didn't kick them out, they're dwelling in the land. Verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30. Zubalon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Neholol, uh, so the uh, the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, uh, Continue on in verse 32, so the, yep, uh, lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. On and on, verse 33, um, the Nephletites, okay, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth. Good Lord. Yeah, okay. Um, so here's, here's what we're doing. Um, what, we, what we come to find out is some of the tribes have kicked them out. Some of the tribes are doing well. But some are not. Like there's portions of Israel that not only is not kicking them out, but they're compromising. Well, we put him to force. So what this is kind of like, what we, we find out is it's kind of like the kid who was at that camp night, that last night of camp. I'm never going to do drugs again. He was addicted to heroin. He was addicted to drinking, addicted to smoke. I'm never going to do drugs. I'm never going to do anything. And, and then like two weeks later, you see him and he's getting drunk and he's getting high, but you're kind of like, well, he's 17. He's not, he's not doing heroin at least. At least at least he's doing Okay. There's kind of this compromise. Well, yeah, we didn't kick them out, but we'll put them to force. We're going to keep them in the land. They're here and that's okay. And it gets so bad that actually, instead of describing what the people of God are doing to the Canaanites, we actually start to get what the Canaanites are doing to the people of God when it says this in verse 34. The Amorites press the people of Dan, the people of Dan are, are um, a tribe of Israel, so the people of God, back into the hill country. So here, here, here's my point. Um, this is not looking good. What we find immediately from Judges 1 is war, Battle, destruction, it's awful. But in the midst of all that, what should be happening, what was declared on the last night of camp in Joshua's, oh, we'll finish this. It's kind of like you make a mess. It's made everywhere, but then you clean the table, but then you gotta kind of mop up. It's this mop up campaign. It's this finishing up, last touches, let's get them out, and, and they're failing. You just promised you were gonna serve the Lord. You were gonna trust in the Lord, but now you're failing. What are you doing? You're, you're losing, you're not trusting God. Um, a guy named Tim Keller, who will probably quote a lot in Judges? Um, Demeter had suggested this commentary for the book of Judges, and I think it's great. Um, he's a pastor in, in New York City. Uh, he says this, um, and, and I think it's helpful, just talking about chapter one. Taken on its own terms, chapter one reads a little like a collection of Israel's press releases about their campaign. It's their spin on why they weren't as successful as we and God might have expected. The readers are lulled into sympathy with the Israelites. When we are told that they could not drive out, in verse 19, the Canaanites, we are inclined to agree. They did their best. Then suddenly we are confronted and shocked by God's assessment. So chapter 1 is essentially the Israelites going, man, we're trying, we're trying to kick them out, but we keep failing. We're not getting this right. This isn't good. We're trying to kick them out, but we can't do it. But it's, it's fine. I mean, at least we're not doing heroin. We're, we're, we're just, we're drinking and, and we're smoking right? So there's this compromise that goes on. Well, chapter one ends. And what did I say about chapter one and two? They're parallels. So that is from their perspective. Now let's start the story again from chapter two, another introductory chapter about from God's perspective. Okay. Chapter two says, uh, starts, uh, we're going to start in verse six and we'll come back verses one through five. This is, this is the answer to why. Why are the people of Israel failing at their task uh, to, to um, kick out the Canaanites? When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of their elders um, who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. So we've heard this many times already, right? This is a retelling of that. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timonath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim north of the mountains of Geash. You guys, you guys know where that is. It's like right by the quick trip up there. Uh, verse 10. <laughs> and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Hear this last portion. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So from the Israelites' perspective, they're saying we're trying to drive them out but we can't. Why? Why can't you? And immediately, if we were to start that story over again from God's perspective, he's saying, listen, because this is a generation that, that, that's passed and, and, and they, they may not have been there when, when they crossed the Red Sea. They, they may not have been there when Jericho went down. They may not have been in Egypt, but the truth is they know those stories. They've heard those stories and they're just choosing to make them old hat. The people of God stopped knowing or believing or trusting in God. I think, again, Tim Keller, I think, says it really beautifully when he says this. The word new probably does not mean that they did not know about the Exodus, the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, or the walls of Jericho falling, but rather that the saving acts of God were no longer precious and central to them. They had not learn to revere and rejoice in what God had done. In other words, they had forgotten the gospel that they were saved from slavery in Egypt and brought into the promised land by the gracious, mighty acts of God. So they couldn't do this. So why? So then what's happening? Why are they failing? Because they've forgotten who God was. And this is what happens. They forgot the gospel. God saved them. They know the story, but they don't treat it as dear as they should. Well, this is what happened. This is why they're failing. Verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. When you forget God, you do what is right in your own eyes. And you do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And serve the Baals. And they abandon the Lord. And God uh, and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So they serve other gods now because they forgot who God was. They've lost grip on who God is. And so it made a little bit easier to believe uh, another narrative. It made it a little bit easier to, to not remind yourself of that narrative, to not remind yourself of that truth. It made it a little bit easier to hear their stories, to hear their gods, and believe in them. And so God immediately goes, hey, hey, buddy, listen up. If you, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to punish you, and you won't drive them out. I'm going to let them defeat you. And that's what happens. This is what it says. Verse 14. So the Lord... Or so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to the plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. Whenever they marched out, they didn't want, they tried to do it without God. The hand of the Lord is against them for harm. Put that on a coffee mug. Um, As the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them and they were in terrible distress. So they tried to do this thing without God, and that's why they're failing. Not because they didn't have political power, not because they didn't have might. Let me just pause very quickly and make a statement. It has nothing to, well, it has everything to do with judges, but this is outside of judges. Because um, I just remembered I should probably say this. Some of you are going to probably try to read into this story that, like, America is Israel. No, that's crazy, okay? This says, no, don't try to do that. That's insane. Okay, so now... Um, <laughs> Now, now so, so what's happening with it, they're, they're trying to kick him out and they're failing because they're not trusting God. And here is how they're failing. Here's what's happening. They're getting caught into a cycle that we know all too well. Um, here, here, here's what I mean. So, um, Ms. Blake came up here and read this portion. Let me read that same portion to you um, with you understanding this. What takes place within the Israelites is the same thing that we understand, but we pick it up from Joshua. We're never going to sin again. And then what they did is they, they sinned. And when they sin, they feel pain, uh, uh, subjugation by another group, they lose a battle, whatever it is, and then they cry out to God. In their pain, they cry out to God, and when they cry out to God, God saves them. And when God saves them, he brings rest. But then in that rest, they start to look at other gods again, and they sin. And you know what sin brings? Pain. You know what pain brings? Crying out. You know what crying out brings? God saving them. You know what happens after God saves them? There's peace. There's rest. And you know what happens when they're in that peace and rest? They sin. You know what happens after the sin? You see what I'm saying? So they're caught in this cycle and we saw it perfectly in this kind of summary of what Miss Blake came up here, what Christina came up here and read. Let me, let me read it to you um, again as she came up and read. Kind of verses moved aside. It was the first text that was put up. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at uh, age 110 years. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. We just read this. Or the work that, had, uh, been, that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They sinned. And served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he gave them over to the plunders. We just read this. There's, there's punishment, there, there's, there's pain in that. Who plundered them? And he sold them into the hand of the surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. So this is all stuff we just read. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out. So God now saves them, skipping all the way down towards uh, the the end of this chapter. It says this, then he saved them from the hand of their enemies, all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved by pity, by their groaning because of those who afflicted and, and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They get caught in this cycle. And the reason they're not successful is because they get caught in this cycle. So, um, again, for the linear cats in the room, um, here's what this cycle looks like. And, it, and it's pretty simple. And it's a cycle that, um, we're, not that one, the, it's a, like a big wheel or something. Um, it's a cycle that we're really familiar with. And if we don't have it, that's okay. Um, it's this cycle. I'm gonna keep, I have to keep looking because I don't know <laughs> if it's up there or not. Um, there it is. There we go. So it's this cycle, right? So sin, and we'll give it to you all S's, right? Because we're fancy. Okay? Um, so, so you start with Sin. And sin moves for them to servitude, which means they're, they're subjugated to service to another nation from servitude. They cry out. That's a fancy word for prayer, which is supplication. They cry out to God in their supplication. God saves them. And after God saves them, there's silence, there's peace, there's harmony. Things are well, but then they, they sin again. And this happens. FYI, if you want to know how to read the book of judges, that's the story. That's honestly all that takes place. If I could be straight with you, that's the story of the Bible. The people of God over and over getting caught in this cycle, over and over getting caught in this cycle again and again and again and again. So at the end of chapter two, let let me, let me just say, we finished chapter two. There's a perfect example um, of this. Actually, if you can keep that up, John, that would be awesome. Um, Because here's what happens. Usually when God saves the people, when they're crying out, he sends, now here's the definition, these judges. That's why the book is called Judges. What is a judge? Um, he sends this guy, this woman, whoever it is, sends this person to lead the nation. hes They're not quite a king, but they're like a, a ruler, and they're like the military power. They're the ones who's going to lead them and how to defeat the Canaanites. They're kind of this all-encompassing Judge Dredd type of Sylvester Stallone character, right? So um, they they're, they come on the scene, and, and they're this this kind of own it. Here, Here's who we are, and God saves them using them. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to read the very very first judge. I just want to read the very first judge, um, and it's a guy named Oneal. Before we get to Deborah or Samson or Gideon, there's this very first judge, and we'll see exactly how this cycle takes place. So if you can, you can go to Judges chapter 3, the next chapter over, and we're almost done here. Um, And I'm going to read four four verses to you, Um, just Judges chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 7 and go to 11. This is what it says. This is the cycle, so you can see it. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, so they sinned. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Cushion, yep, king of Mesopotamia, uh, Mesopotamia, Tania, uh, and the people of Israel served Cushion, I'll try it, Rishathayim, eight years. So they're, they're forced to servitude. they're subjugated, uh, there's pain. Verse 9, and when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there's supplication, there's prayer, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who served them. Othniel, he's our first judge, the son of Canez, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave the Cushion, Rishthiam, um, king of Mesopotamia, um, into the hand and, the, and his hand prevailed over the Cushionarianism's salvation so that the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canez, died. So you can see um, there's sin, servitude. There's this cycle. There's this cycle. Okay. That's all the chapters in Judges we're going to read. We're, we're clear? Everyone gets Judges right, okay? Um, here's, here's the, I think, the big question that we have to do now before we wrap all this up is ask, what are we supposed to do with this? Like, like ain't nobody remembering any of those names, right? I mean, I, I, the, the places, the names are going to become foreign. Like, why is this in the Bible? What are we supposed to do with this whole thing? And I think there's a couple things that I want to put in front of you. And the first thing is something that I already mentioned a little bit, but you know absolutely is though that it's, and even though that it's 4,000 years removed and it's 4,000 miles removed, the reality is that cycle shows us that our hearts are no distance at all removed. Like, like I've been there, man. I, I remember very specifically getting saved. I'm 17, 18 years old. I'm dating my wife now, Candice, and I, we can just not stop doing the things that we're doing. Like, you can, you can, well, don't use your imagination, but you can guess what those things are, okay? So we continue to sin together over and over. And I've been there last night at camp. I'm never going to sin again. I'm not going to do that again. And then I start to see her, right? I'm 17 years old. Okay. So, and then I mess, we mess up and then I'm, God, I'm so sorry. I don't want to do that anymore. And I'm caught in this cycle, right? And, and then God just breathe. I'm with you. He comforts me. He reminds me of what Jesus did on the cross. And then there's this peace and I'm like, God, I'm, you're right. I'm not going to maybe at one point I broke up with her. We're not going to do this anymore, but that didn't stop anything. You know what we did? We sinned, right? And I've been caught in that cycle, absolutely caught in that cycle. And, and as a Christian, most likely, you know what that's like. We can see the people and absolutely feel that. Now, here's where Sean has to go kind of fire and brimstone on you, okay? Um, so give me some grace. Um, here's the reality of this. We can look at the people of Israel and we can see, well, yeah, they're, they're trying to conquer them, but they can't. They just can't do it. And this is where a little bit of my frustration comes as a pastor. Breathe, but I'm going to get rough here in a second. Um, it, I grew up in a household with drug addicts. And I watched people who couldn't stop doing something. You, using the language of can't, when you simply won't, is not okay. For you to simply go, oh, I can't stop looking at the computer screen. No, you can, you just won't. Like the reality is, you're choosing not to have someone come alongside you. You're choosing not to get rid of that computer. You have these idols still in your life that you want to hold on to. It's not a matter of can't, it's a matter of won't. I mean, if we're going to be judges and we're going to be super real, let me give you an example that John Piper gives. He talks about the man who's addicted to pornography and he, can't, he says, yeah, I can't stop looking. I can't stop looking. And he says, no, the truth is if I grabbed your wife or grabbed your son or daughter and held a gun to their head and said, if you do it again, I will kill them. You would never do it again. If they were right there, you would. So it's not can't. It's not motivation. It's won't. And, and, and listen, like being around drug addicts and being around people who are addicted to alcohol, it looks so much similar to a disease than it does a sin, right? They're, they're caught into this and they physically, like there's something that is spiritualized taking a hold of them. You continuing to go to the casino and be an idiot spending all that money is not a can't, it's a won't. You mistreating your wife because your anger is not a can't, it's a won't. You choosing to not have people come around you to pray in that direction are won'ts not can'ts now we know this because god tells us a great example of this is forgiveness i just can't forgive them i could never forgive them no yet all the while god is telling you in matthew 18 to forgive them so god's telling you to do something that you can't do no you won't do you won't seek counsel you won't look for wisdom you won't pray in that direction you like having that there um, a couple things. And, and this, again, is maybe a little more linear than you. Um, but, but here's the, the reality. Can you put up those six things that um, uh, seem... So here's, here's six things that I think uh, w- would be good for us to identify. And here's why. And normally we wouldn't do something like this, but I think it's helpful. Because the reality is the, the, the wants in our life, these false idols, are the exact idols. The same reason that Israel is not kicking out the Canaanites. But they're just classified under gods. Okay? So we may not serve Baal... We may not serve Ron, but we may not serve these other gods, these false gods. But what those gods stood for, we absolutely serve. And that's where the confusion. People are like, well, I don't serve another god. you know, cor- No, listen. The reality is what the undertoning uh, premise of all that is, is true. A great example of this is comfort, right? Like, how much do we as humans hate comfort? No, wait, let's rewind that. How much of us humans, we love comfort, right? So much so that when we experience physical pain, we look for medication. When we're hot, we seek to be cold. When we're cold, we seek to be hot. We do not like being uncomfortable. Yet the gospel calls you to a place of uncomfortability over and over and over again. I mean, we could see this all over, right? Pleasure, what I just talked about. This, and here's what's, because what's, we can go throughout all these checklists and, and, and say this, but here's the reality of what you see taking place. The people of Israel slowly but surely compromise, and here's why I would argue why you're stuck in that cycle, why I get stuck in that cycle, why we put these things in front of God. Here, here's what I would argue. Maybe it's something that you're not thinking of, um, or at least have processed, and, processed enough. Um, in the midst of being uh, suffocated by that God, in the midst of, of being stuck in all these things, um, I think it comes from a place of manageability. Like for Israel, they're forced to rely on God to go conquer this country. God's going to give us the promised land. He said he would, but we got to wait on him. Wait? What do you mean wait? We can have it right now if we just do this. I mean, how, how, how perfect is this Like in, in the areas of like... well. You know, so, so for the Israelites or the Canaanites at that time, their gods would say, hey, if, uh, if your wife is infertile and she can't have a baby, go make this sacrifice and you're done. If you do this, you will get this. It makes our religion very manageable. It makes as long as I can, if I can get what I want, how I want it, instead of relying on God. And that is the course of sin. Now here's what's awesome about this. Um, there's a portion of scripture that we did not read um, that I skipped over and it's in the beginning of Ch- uh, uh, Judges chapter two. It starts in verses one through five. And here's why God, loves you. This is why God continues to go after Israel out with with his glory, pushing towards his glory. Here's the purpose. Here's why uh, we put those six things up on the screen. This is what it says in Judges chapter two, verse one through five, kind of this parallel between the two stories we read, the two accounts that we read. Now the angel of the Lord went up to Gilgal to Batcham And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to you, to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And so now I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Keep that up on the screen. Listen, God says, listen, I told you, I have a covenant with you. Why are you going in this direction? Why do you continue to look for happiness and for joy in this direction? Fine, you want it? You wanna know what sex is like before marriage? I'll show you what it's like. You wanna know what this experience is like before? You wanna know how to do this? You want joy in that direction? You want happiness like this? Let me give it to you. And he tells them, you want it so bad, it's gonna be a snare to you. You're gonna wake up one day and go, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And it's no longer you own that thing, but it owns you, man. It absolutely owns you. And you know what happens in that moment? This is what happens in that moment. Verse four, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these things, the words to all the people of Israel, hear this, the people lifted up their voices and wept. What are we doing? He's not against your joy to tell you to stop, to get out of that cycle, to stop looking for happiness and join those things. He's for it. He knows that false idol, that God, hates you. He knows, he knows that that lie, that idol that like he's putting in front of you, that idol hates you. He's lying to you. He's fancying himself up to make himself look pretty, but it's synthetic, man. It's fake, and he hates you just to bring you in, to disappoint you, and it's only going to bring you pain. That's the God you serve. He loves you enough to fight for your joy even when you're not willing to. How beautiful is that? Now, here's the last thing, and this is where we'll close. More than anything, the people of Israel um, don't need an Othniel. They don't need a Samson. They don't need a Deborah. They don't need a judge, man. They, 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 They don't need somebody to kind of step in temporarily because at the end of every single story you will read in the Bible, the Davids, the Moseses, the Abrahams, their lives end with something simple, and then they died. And what the people of Israel and the people of God need is something that is bigger. It's long lasting that, that, that we read this story of Jesus and he comes on the scene and we see he dies. And for a moment, he looks like the Abrahams and the Moseses and the Davids. And yet we're told he beats death out of nowhere. That's so what resurrection is such a big deal? Because now suddenly he's a priest that is forever. He's better than Samson. He's better than Othniel. He's better than Gideon. He's better than Deborah, Moses, Abraham, Adam. He's better than all these people. And so we're not looking at this to go, what's the moral compass? How do I follow in the steps of all these men? No, they are all shadows of the better. What we need is a perfect judge. A judge who knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. A judge that knows what it's like to be tempted to the fullest degree A judge that knows what it's like to experience pain and abandonment by the close ones around him. That's the kind of judge and high priest that we need. Ladies and gentlemen, his name is Jesus. It's who he is. All this book does is point us towards him. Keller says it perfectly when he says this. Judges can be described as despicable people doing deplorable things. And as trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. As the history unfolds, even the heroes, the judges, become increasingly flawed and failing. They do many appalling things, and their efforts have less and less redemptive effect. It is a dismal story, and it is all history. So the reader will be led to ask again and again, What in the world is this doing in the Bible? The answer is an important one it is the gospel. The book of Judges shows us that the Bible is not a book of virtues. It's not full of inspirational stories. Why? Because the Bible, unlike books on which the other religions are based, is not about following moral examples. It is about a God of mercy and longsuffering who continually works in and through us despite our constant resistances to his purposes. Ultimately, there's only one hero in this book and he is divine. That's what the book of Judges is about. If you're going to read anything into this story and not get caught up in all the logistics, understand it is a people who fight. He's, no, 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 come and, carry. and then they run. No, no, coming here. And, and he's saving his children from running out into the street again and again and again and again. He cares. He loves. He is with us. He is not far. All the attributes that we can see about God are summed up beautifully in the book of Judges because he is persistently faithful towards his people, <coughs> totally motivated by love. May we be the same thing towards him. Let's pray.